We do well to think upon the ascension, its significance for us, as distinct from Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And as we do, surely we will only be further emboldened to live out our faith to the praise and honor of God. We'll be comforted and greatly encouraged. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Making Sense of the Ascension with Pastor Paul Twiss. When you think of major Christian holiday celebrations, what comes to mind? Christmas and Easter, right? I mean, we have special services for them, special songs, and even certain clothes we may wear during these holiday seasons. But have you ever thought about celebrating Christ's ascension into heaven? Some Christians do. Does your church make any special occasion of it? Do they even mention it? Maybe it's because it doesn't fall on a Sunday that it's not acknowledged by many preachers or even us. Guaranteed, it's not marked on your calendar. So what's the big deal about Christ going up into heaven? And just what is he doing up there? Here's Pastor Paul with Making Sense of the Ascension. My privilege now to open God's Word with you in our text this morning is at the end of Luke's Gospel. I'd ask you to turn there, chapter 24, and just the three, four verses uh, that Luke gives us recording the Ascension. Earlier this morning, we read Luke's second account of the Ascension, found in Acts chapter 1. And for our sermon, we'll think about these four verses at the end of his Gospel, also recording the Ascension. Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, the text reads, And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshipping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So reads God's word. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. When Jesus ascended, what became of his sandals? When Jesus ascended, what became of his sandals? That was a question asked by a Cambridge tutor to an applicant applying to the university to read not theology, but geography. The young man was perplexed. He didn't know what to make of that question. He didn't know what the tutor was looking for. should be noted the young man was an evangelical. And so after some time, he gave a somewhat pious response. He said, whatever became of Jesus' sandals, neither you nor I are worthy to untie them. (laughs) Now, I don't think we need to spend any more time thinking on that question, but there are other questions that we might ask concerning Jesus' ascension. When Jesus ascended, what became of the Pharisees? Those who had worked so hard during his earthly ministry to hinder Jesus, as those Pharisees saw Jesus on the cross, as they heard the report of the empty tomb, 
As they heard the news that Jesus was walking around with his disciples some days after, and now the report comes that he went up into heaven. Did any of them reconsider? Did any of them re-examine their hearts to question whether maybe they'd got it wrong about this man? When Jesus ascended, what became of the Romans, some of whom had witnessed his crucifixion, some of whom had witnessed firsthand the empty tomb, undoubtedly also hearing reports of him walking around and having a ministry after his death, now alive again. And again, the news comes that this man was seen going up into heaven. Did any repent? Did any join this new way? We don't know. When Jesus ascended, what became of his disciples? Now, that's an easier question to answer. The reason it's easier to answer is because a whole book of the Bible testifies exactly what became of them. Of course, I'm referring to the book of Acts. Luke's gospel is the first part of a two-part drama, and he tells us in the book of Acts exactly what became of these men. In short, they became world changers. Acts 17, these men who have turned the world upside down through their preaching, through their steadfast testimony, through their commitment to the church, these men turned the world upside down. Now, it may be that you've never really thought of the ascension as informing the ministry of the men in the book of Acts. As you read through Acts, certainly the cross is very much in view. They preached Christ crucified. And certainly the resurrection is very much at the forefront of their minds. You read all of the speeches in the book of Acts and they are boldly proclaiming a resurrected Lord. But so also is the ascension. As you read through the Acts narrative, you see that the ascension had in no small way informed these men's understanding of themselves. They perceived themselves in light of the ascension. And so the question comes to us whether we also have made sense of the ascension? Does it factor into our thinking and our understanding of the gospel, our understanding of who we are in Christ, or is it altogether neglected? It seems early on in church history it was a very loved, sought-after, and espoused doctrine. Even beyond the book of Acts within the New Testament, there is a creed that Paul records for us as he writes to Timothy He records an ancient creed within which we read of the proclamation of Christ, the vindication of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. It was a treasured doctrine in the early church. And then somewhere along the way, it seems like the ascension was folded into the resurrection. Somewhere along the way, it seems like the waters were muddied so that oftentimes we think of the ascended Lord as the same as the resurrected Lord. We think about the theology of the ascension as equal to the same thing as the theology of the resurrection. And of course, these are two distinct things. We do well to think upon the ascension, its significance for us, as distinct from Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And as we do, surely we will only be further emboldened to live out our faith to the praise and honor of God, we'll be comforted and greatly encouraged. 
So in these four verses that Luke records for us, we read of Christ's ascension, and what we see that there are many themes and motifs that have been working their way through Luke's gospel, coming to a head here, coming to a culminating point at Christ's ascension. And then as we project into the book of Acts, we find those same themes and motifs unravel themselves through the lives of the disciples. So much so that we can understand the ascension as something of a hinge point in Luke's story. Now, I've made seven observations from these four verses, seven encouragements as we think upon the ascension. And by virtue of the fact that there are seven, that means at least one thing we need to get going. So, encouragement number one, the ascension proclaims Christ's return. We read that he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. It seems like an incidental detail. Until you think of the alternatives, why didn't Jesus ascend from Jerusalem? That's Mission HQ. Why didn't he ascend there with a much larger crowd? Why did he lead them out to Bethany? Luke likes to make much of journeys. In his gospel and in the book of Acts, Luke makes much of journeys. The gospel begins with a journey as Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Over half of the gospel is given to Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, more than any of the other gospels. It's in Luke's gospel alone that we read the parable of the prodigal son, where the son leaves the home and comes back. It's in Luke's gospel alone that we read the parable of the good Samaritan, another journey. It's only Luke that records for us the road to Emmaus, another journey. And then we move into Acts and we find yet more journeys. The story of the Ethiopian eunuch returning from his worship at the temple. The story of Paul on the road to Damascus. And then the narrative finishes with a long journey as Paul travels to Rome. What's the point? Why does Luke make so much of journeys? He uses journeys often to reveal to us a surprising manifestation of God's grace. Often, think about the road to Emmaus. Those men, the last thing they expected was that Jesus himself would show up. Or the Ethiopian eunuch returning from his worship, he meets Philip and is saved and baptized. So with that in view, we note that Luke draws attention to Jesus leading them out to the east side of the Mount of Olives. Where's the manifestation of God's grace in that? Perhaps it seems like the complete opposite as Jesus leaves them until you understand that this is but half of the journey. This is but half of the journey. This particular journey is not yet complete. It is completed when Christ returns. There's the manifestation of God's grace, and that is exactly the point that the angels draw their attention to. The last few episodes in Luke's gospel and the beginning of Acts all center on a rhetorical question in order to make the point of the text. So it begins with the empty tomb, and the angels show up and say, Why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? He is alive. Then Jesus meets his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he says, rhetorical question, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? The implication is, yes, of course, that's part and parcel of the logic of the gospel. Jesus then meets with his disciples and says, why are you troubled? Implication, you need not be. I am risen, and in that you find your confidence And then finally, as we step into Acts, the last rhetorical question asked is of the angels, 
as they say, why do you gaze into heaven? This man is coming back. The fact of Jesus ascending before his disciples testifies to his sure and his certain return. And in that one idea, there is great encouragement. In the doctrine of Christ's return, the Christian can press on. The difficulty for us, the hindrance that we feel in anchoring our lives to the surety of Christ's return is simply the immediacy of our age. More so than ever, we live our lives in the now, in the present. We have shortened our temporal horizons. Everything is now such that we have lost the sense of where we have come from and we struggle to perceive where we are headed. It wasn't that long ago that every child in America had to memorize the Gettysburg Address. Why? To instill in them a sense of history. This is where you've come from. In the same way, it's always been a mark of the Christian church throughout its history to look forward to the blessed hope. Christians through the ages have clung on to the blessed hope in times of trial and adversity. And we all too easily lose sense of it because of the immediacy of our age. And what we must strive to do is lift our eyes beyond our immediate horizon to the final horizon to see that the ascension guarantees Christ's return. And in that, be greatly encouraged. Second observation, the ascension tells us everything is going according to plan. Luke says he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now, you have to understand, as Christ does this, he's not blessing them without precedent. What Christ is doing is entering into an Old Testament pattern whereby the leader or the patriarch blesses those that would come after him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. At the point of their departure, they blessed those that would come after Now, what was the substance of that blessing? If we could summarize, it was a communication and assurance of God's goodness, his guidance in their lives. As he has been with me, so he will be with you. Many have suggested here, as Christ raises his hands and assumes a priest-like function, quite possibly the content of his blessing is that of number six, the ironic blessing. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance and give to you peace, quite possibly. And this is an encouragement that I'm sure the disciples were ready and willing to receive. As Jesus departs, he says, God is going to be with you. It's one that's not that difficult for us to get our minds around until... We think upon the tension that comes by virtue of the following chapters. It's not that many chapters later that these men are being laughed at, mocked at because of their message. It's not many chapters later when one of their number is stoned to death. A few chapters later now, James dies. 
A few chapters later, and now Paul is shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, and put under house arrest. And that is where the book of Acts ends. Where's God's goodness? I thought you told us he was going to be with us in this. Of course, it's not by any means that Jesus' blessing has failed. But rather, the tension drives us towards what I call Luke's theology of necessity. Luke's favorite word, one word in the original, three words in the English text, it is necessary. It occurs over a hundred times in the New Testament. Nearly half of those are in Luke and Acts. Read Luke, Acts from beginning to end and see how many times Luke tells us it is necessary. It had to happen this way. There were no other options. This is God's perfect plan. Everything is going exactly according to plan. What's interesting is you look at the artwork depicting the ascension throughout the history of the church, oftentimes the painter would represent Christ exalted, and then around his feet were not merely the disciples. A lot of Christian artwork has many hundreds of people around Christ's feet at this point. Why? So as to infer that this blessing given is relevant for the church today and not just the disciples that were then present. So we readily receive the promise of God's goodness to us. But you have to understand that promise within the theology of necessity. Are you able to affirm in all of life's trials, all of the realities of sin in you and around you, God is sovereign. He is good, and everything is going according to plan. As we look at the ascension, we are greatly encouraged by that fact. Thirdly, we read of the ascension portraying our power. The ascension speaks of our power. Now, what do I mean by that? Jesus, lifting up his hands, blesses them. Then verse 51, it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them. It reads almost with a sense of redundancy. Luke tells us that Jesus blessed them. And then in the next verse, he says, and he blessed them. Of course, the subtle difference is that he draws attention to the ascension beginning While blessing them, Jesus began his ascent into heaven. It is difficult to overstate the significance of this seemingly minor detail. You see, if we go back to the Old Testament precedent upon which Jesus is leaning, one of the features of those patriarchal blessings is that the leader communicated, transferred something of his status onto those he was blessing. Not just a communication of God's goodness, but also of the leader himself. So when Jacob blesses his sons, he's doing so as the head of a family. And whoever it is that receives the firstborn blessing, he now inherits that status. Something of Jacob is communicated in the blessing. In the same way, whatever it is you write into your will, 
The recipient of that will inherits that status. Something of your life is communicated and transferred to the recipient. So it's so important for us to see that Jesus did not bless his disciples in his role as a carpenter. He wasn't making carpenters. Jesus didn't bless his disciples as a humble earthly servant, though he was. That's not when he blessed them. Jesus didn't bless his disciples from the cross. He didn't even bless his disciples in his resurrected form. But rather, Luke shows us it was as he was ascending that he blessed them. The exalted Christ is the one that blesses his disciples. There is a communication of his exaltation onto the disciples. Not that they had any power in and of themselves or any authority in and of themselves, but they understood themselves as mediators of the exalted Christ. This is how it is that they go about the job of the ministry in the book of Acts with such boldness, with the utmost grace and humility, but the utmost boldness. They preach the singularity of Christ in the face of all adversity. They say there is no other name given amongst men under heaven by which we are to be saved. Where does that boldness come from? Because they know that they are mediators of the exalted Christ. Think again upon Stephen. His face is shining like an angel. And he preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And the Jews get mad. Now, why did they get mad? Because he went long? No. Because he indicted them. And so they pick up some rocks and they throw them at Stephen. And then they pick up a few more rocks and they throw them at Stephen. And they keep doing this until the man's heart stops beating. First Christian martyr recorded for us in Scripture. And Stephen responds not in fear, not anxiously, not getting angry, not running away, nor fighting back. Stephen responds exactly the way the Lord Jesus did. Stephen dies the most Christ-like death in all of the Bible. He drops to his knees and he says, Father, receive my spirit and forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It's a really short text, but every time I read it, I am challenged to think upon how did this man respond in this way? Answer, because the whole time he was looking at the exalted Christ. Stephen had the utmost clarity about who he was in light of Christ's exaltation. I am a mediator of the exalted Christ. You can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. Same with Paul. Here's a man, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He used to delight in persecuting and killing Christians. He was there at the stoning of Stephen, presiding over it. And then all of a sudden he emerges, utterly transformed, ready to die for the gospel. From where does that boldness come? That life transformation? Because he met on the road to Damascus with the exalted Christ. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In this time of constant bad news, what gives you encouragement? Surely few things on earth are going to lift you up and give you hope. One of the most exciting things about Christianity is, unlike all other religious founders, ours is still alive. Not only that, 
He's still ruling from his throne. Everything that happens is still under his domain. How does that affect you in your daily decisions as you get closer to seeing him on his throne? If you'd like to learn more about Jesus, whose rule from heaven can change your life right now, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org, then select broadcasts for solid gospel teaching. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you don't have a home church, come worship with us. Good Friday is this week, and you're invited to a special service at 6 p.m. And then on Easter Sunday at 10.30 a.m. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Listen tomorrow for part two of Making Sense of the Ascension. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.